When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hey, everyone. This is the Two Guys from Hollywood podcast and iHeartRadio and Dan Patrick Podcast Network production. I'm Joey Santos. And I'm Alan Nevins. And this week we're talking about the gay literary landscape. What we love, what we hate, and what we want to see more of. Joining the conversation this week is someone I've known a long time, author Stephen Rowley. You may recognize him as the author of two incredibly successful books, Lily and the Octopus and The Editor. Stephen is a leading voice in publishing right now, and I'm excited to have him on the show. So let's grab a drink and dive in. So joining us today is Philip Smith, who you've heard on our podcast before. So welcome, Philip. Well, thank you for having it's me. Nice I'm so glad to be back. Thank you for having me. Joey, what is this concoction you have sitting in front of us? What is this drink? For our illustrious guest today, uh, I created a cocktail um, as a daiquiri, uh, and I called it the Hemingway. And it has two ounces of rum, a half ounce of maraschino liqueur, half ounce of grapefruit juice, Lime juice, three-quarter ounce, that's optional, depending on what you like. Quarter ounce of simple syrup, and it's garnished with a lime wheel. So mm. if it's a daiquiri, but it's not blended. No, daiquiris really aren't. I mean, that, that, you can make it that way or the other way. So this is more of a perfect daiquiri or a simple daiquiri. Right. So it's kind of like a martini? Kind of. Yeah, okay. exactly. Looks good. Yeah, it looks good. Looks it's really refreshing. Good. It's a Let's little bit tart it. and a little bit sweit. So kind of like us. A little tart, a yeah. little, little sweet. Tart. <laughs> A lot well, of tart and a little big sweet. Tart. <laughs> <laughs> You're not that sweet. <laughs> but very tart. Very. <laughs> I don't yeah, even know where to start. To start, yeah. There's we two things on going on in TV that have the world. Dominated. Yes, the world captivated. The Oprah Winfrey interview of Harry and Meghan Markle. Yes. And I say that, Harry Markle, Meghan Markle. Meghan. I think they're the Markles now. Harry Windsor, um, Meghan Markle, Windsor. Yeah. Or Harry There's not Markle. a lot of Windsor Harry left. Harry Markle think, now. I think they've booted him and said, uh, the yeah. Markles can have you. Yeah, I think so. That, there's that. And then, of course, the Woody Allen, Mia Farrow mm. documentary. Yeah, and we're, mm. this is now, yeah, we're, we're there. Because remember done. in the beginning, I said to you, I'm just going to sit back and let it unfold. And lo and behold, it most certainly has. Right. So let me tell you the most interesting thing, because you know what my attitude was on this 
about his book and everything. In the beginning. And I thought, you know, he hasn't been convicted of anything, and, you know, they're canceling his book. But Canceling him? But interestingly enough, after watching this, I have two questions. First of all, like the Meghan Markle interview, I don't understand why they did it. Do you know what I mean? Like, why are you putting this out there in the public after, in the documentary, you talk about, oh, you know, let's take it out of the public, and now you've gone full public, you've done an eight-hour miniseries, and, you know, the only thing I could come to is that because there wasn't any criminal justice for them, or there was no sort of outcry, and he kept making movies and things, that they did this to maybe change everyone's attitude about Woody Allen? That's what I'm lost on is why did you do this and put all this sort of dirty laundry out in public? I don't understand what's the gain. You know what I mean? Well, what was unresolved from the very beginning? Is that that what we're trying to get to? Is is it a resolve we're coming to? And that's what I think is what the purpose is. I mean, he's never been convicted. It's never really been established. And this young girl and a whole family has sort of been changed forever. Yeah. And I think maybe it's just a matter of trying to put some pieces back. You know, I, I, I think it's, it's more of what's going on in your head than it is what went on with your body. Do you know what I mean? Because of what they did. You know, it wasn't the touching as much as how much it's sort of like, ooh, my dad did this. Well, you can see as a young girl in, in her interviews, and that, that I really watched closely, mm-hmm was that a child doesn't know what that means. Right. But inherently, you know when something doesn't feel right. And and it wasn't that he was hurting her, because the, the scary part is that it probably felt good. And that, that's, where they, that's where the manipulation comes from. Right. But because she doesn't know what that means, that it's not supposed to feel, it's not, it's, it's, it feels wrong. It doesn't feel bad, it feels wrong. wrong. Yeah. And she knew there. that from the very beginning. And that's what she's carrying with her now into her adulthood, is that it always felt wrong. And I think that's what needs to be established. And who did that, why, and how it gets, you know, fixed mm-hmm. is what we should be looking at and what, and he should be responsible for that. Right. Well, it's how do you fix it? Because once it's happened, you can't take it you back. You can't take it back. So now it's like, okay, what do we do to make it the best it can be? And I guess it's even harder if you continue to deny it and say, well, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Because, you know, again, now it's your father lying to you when you know he, you know, it's like the person telling you is like, wait, father, I was there. You can't. And your father like is married to your sister. Yeah, I know. You see, so it's it's screwed up, like from beginning, middle to end. Right, and so somebody has to come out of this, or somebody has to be responsible for something. Some some closure has to be found. So I don't know how you do it. What is this? Twenty years later, thirty 20 years plus later, years, because some of this is what ninety two, ninety one. Yeah, so it's, it's already we're going on quite yeah. a quite a long time, and and this girl is now a woman, and she's going to start a family at some point in relationships. I mean, everything is all over the place. And and where's Mia still walking around the farm? You know, I mean. And then, of course, her begging him. I mean, in those phone calls, when she was asking, what room? Where We looked all over for you in the house. We looked everywhere. We looked everywhere, and you would never cop. Right. 
We looked. Every- well, they said, "Oh, the, it'll all come out." And it's like, well, she wasn't. Oh, yeah. She didn't want it to all come out in some press thing. Right. She's she wanted to know you. on the she phone. You to level just up. tell me, give me an excuse of where you were for the twenty minutes, so I can feel better. Because mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. she could say, "Now I know you didn't do it." You know, tell me you were at the, you know, swimming tell under the you water. Were or that you were getting eggs from the, little, uh, the, the yeah. little chicken coop or whatever. Anything you walked into town, that. anything, right? And mm-hmm. that's the last thing anybody wants to hear is that truth. Even though, but there's something about an instinct. There's something about that whisper that we all have. And when you ignore it, like I've said it before, the whisper, the voice, and the scream. Mm-hmm. We're at the scream because mm-hmm. the whisper was maybe, I don't want to believe it. The voice was, he did it. No, I can't believe that. It's not true. Couldn't be. And now the scream is, guess what? Right. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't want to believe it still because you don't want no. you don't want someone who's you know brought you films that you love and you know has been a major character in American, you know, Cinema and whatnot. You, you don't want that to be. Of course not, none of look, us want it to but be. But I mean, right? how many heroes do we make out of cowards? Often. Uh, but yeah, it's you know, so it's a little different. I think they have. I'm sure they have swayed a lot of minds going into this. People were like, eh, I don't know, I don't know. Just like myself, I don't know if you you know if this really happened. Yeah. But I gotta say, coming out of this documentary, they're seeing the things you've never heard and watching those videotapes and. Listening to that girl, you're like, oh boy. No, it's it's but money and power have, yeah. also have a way of silencing other people too, and making people, you know, whatever they think, they'll they'll silence it for themselves. Like, well, I can't go against that. I mean, we're we know this very well. It's all too. Heavy. Anyways, I think he's done. I yeah, think I think he's done. I think this done. is going to be the nail in the coffin. I do. I agree. Yeah. So, all right. So another coffin we should open. Should we okay, do it in the British th- countryside? Yes. Well, but this one is great. You know, I watched this interview and I love the part with Oprah when they say, oh, the family discussed what color the baby might be, right? And Oprah, you know, her Academy Award winning performance, she put her hand on her chest and she said, what? And I thought, oh, look at her acting. Like anybody is surprised, including Oprah, that this was a discussion of this family this German family of 1,200 years, they're like, you're surprised? That's a discussion in my family at every birth. Of course. And, it, and, and as long as we've been friends and, and been around mixed race and all of that stuff, part of our family, for God's sakes, the first conversation, that what's her hair going to be like? Oh, come, it, immediately. <laughs> I mean, it's, not, it's nothing to like, you know what I mean? They, everybody worries about that. Even white people worry about, well, there's going to be too many, what are those freckles? Are you going to be freckles? We all have that stuff. But every, you know, every grandparent, every uncle, every auntie, every is always going to be wondering what's going to come out of that. <laughs> yep. Yes, exactly. Yeah, especially when you see what went into that. And Oprah, but Oprah, you know, being the journalist, pretending she was shocked. We were watching this. We busted out laughing. And we were like, oh, please, Oprah. Well, she also, you're so she shocked. also acted her way into we didn't get paid. Yeah, we well, let's go you. there. All right, so maybe we didn't pay you personally, but your charity got paid. And a, a well, we don't know sum. this. This is allegedly. Allegedly. But what we do know from having a meal the other day with someone who's very connected with the royal family is mm-hmm. uh, that, yes, they were not paid directly, but their charity got a multi-million dollar donation for them to do this interview. And as somebody else at the table said, oh, I thought it was, you know, watch out for he who protests too much, right? And yeah, that she made Oprah say we weren't loudly. paid. Yeah, to pro- yeah, and that she said, oh, no, we weren't paid. 
And this person at the table said, I thought that was weird that they went into so much depth about, you know, whether they were paid or not. Like, hadn't even thought about it until they brought it up. So, I mean, you know, it's you're going to listen to six of one, half a dozen of another. Everything is somebody always has something to say. And on the other side, nobody has anything to say. So who are you protecting? Who are you believing? The, The truth is always three things. That opinion, the other one's opinion and the truth. So if we can just leave it at those three things, everybody has a choice what they want to believe, who they want to believe, and how. Well, Oprah lost me on the line of succession thing, the question about um, they didn't want to give the baby a title. And from what I understand, the baby was never, that was never even on the table, a title for the Whoa. child. A grandchild no, isn't. No, because it's a great-grandchild, great and they're not entitled to the title right. under the change, under, was it George or George somebody? George V. So until the queen and her husband dies... That child isn't even get a title. Correct. And also so the idea that they would push this on the American public, like, oh, look, they stripped us of our title. I, I, again, like the last thing, like, why did they do this? I thought, why did they do this? Talk about airing your dirty laundry and then not being and knowing you're going to get attacked for it and the truth is going to come out. But what, why are you trying to harm this family in England that's beloved? First of all, this is probably the most beloved queen ever. And. You're her grandson, and your wife is talking badly about them. And and everybody's shocked because it's, you know, what color is the baby going to be? It's all so, like, really? You know, well, she's, you know, listen, if you listen to right from the beginning, like I said, and she Oprah asked her, did you have any idea what you were getting into? Oh. Did you Google? Did you even know what? Well, no, I did not. Well, you know you should have. because these <laughs> Because these are the rules. If I'm going to marry somebody... I'm going to not only know every single thing about them, I'm going to know every single thing about their family, family, where they come from, what those traditions are, what the things that are, because I want to be the best of that. I'm blending my life. If she didn't do that, and all of a sudden now you're surprised by this, you know, guess what? You don't get certain things when you do certain things. You don't get financial assistance anymore when you leave the family, when you choose to leave that institution. That's you have to they get they get paid to work, whether it's cutting a ribbon, whether it's wearing a funny hat or whatever the things they do or, you know. Well, this is the misconception. She made it sound like the royal family cut off their security. Nothing to do with the family. The security is supplied by taxpayers in the same way we supply security to the president and senators and whoever it is that we do. And Prince Charles, they they didn't mention that he's been paying his son the whole time uh, on a on a. On a retainer. Right. Mm-hmm. But yeah. by the way, he's acting like, how are we going to pay for our security? We only have $20 million. The, you know, it's a lot more expensive. <laughs> how it's many, a lot more I expensive. I want to know how many viewers wanted to slap his face at that okay. moment. Okay. And you know what's a lot more expensive than that? Paying for her insecurity. <laughs> well, see, but this is <laughs> the thing. Don't you, think she, don't you think she Googled and did all of those things? But again, it's her way. I, she had to know some things, but she chose not to look. She wanted to handle it. Let me tell you, if you are going to marry, she she came off, by the way, she came off as very bright. I thought she was extremely well-spoken. She is. I didn't believe a second of what she was saying because when you start off saying, I didn't Google my husband, it's like, you are marrying the royal family. You didn't Google them as smart as you are. Don't lie to my face. And then to say that, you know, I went into this naively after what happened to his mother. 
First of all, you went into it naively, and he allowed you Two to come into words. it naively. Pussy whipped. <laughs> No, that's yeah, what no, it is, and, and it's, yeah. it runs in the family. Do you think that horse face that the great grandfather, that you know, the uncle married? What was his name? Which one? Wallace Simpson. Yeah. Do you no. think that face? <laughs> but he was whipped. So that pussy whip stuff. Same with Camilla. Pussy whipped again. It run. It's in the men's blood. I'm not kidding. Do you think that face is gonna? You so know. Should we call it royal whip? Royal whip. Royal whip. <laughs> royal whip. <laughs> Giddy up. Mm-hmm, I mean, seriously, mm-hmm. there were not beauties. I mean, she is the exception. She's a beautiful girl. No, no, I mean, hands down. But I'm saying, but those men, they get mesmerized by that, by the women. Royal whip. Yeah, yeah, there you go. By the royal whip. By the royal whip. <laughs> so there you go. I want to read you the funniest thing. Well, uh, funny to you. Funny. It, may not be it funny won't be to funny us. to Megan. <laughs> <laughs> so this review about Samantha Markle's name. Who just recently changed her name back to Markle from uh, Samantha Grant. Right. How so convenient. she's using Samantha Markle as her name on the book, right? Her nom de plume. The joke is, you have to remember, the book is called The Diary of Princess Pushy's Sister, a memoir. Okay, so first of all, I looked at this. I said, is it a diary or is it a memoir? She's named it both. Mm-hmm. It's her diaries and her memoir. And I thought, okay, there's a little weird title Princess there. Princess Pushy, she named her? Yeah, do you remember not what happened with Princess Pushy? One of the, when they interviewed Samantha about her sister, they somehow got her to say that her sister was a little pushy. Right. And then everybody started calling her Princess, Princess pushy. pushy. So does that mean Harry is pushy whipped? <laughs> yeah, you may have stumbled on something. May have stumbled you on may have something. stumbled on something that yes. clear it all whipped. up. He's pushy whipped. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Harry, I had to. Oh my God, <laughs> that oh is so funny. But what I was saying is, so they started dubbing her in the tabloids and things as the pushy princess, right? Which is why Piers Morgan got in trouble the other day because he called her the Pinocchio Princess. <laughs> oh. oh, Lord! But it came the out of this. Off. It came out of the Pushy Princess became the Pinocchio now Princess. Right. Pinocchio right. Princess. I had kind of a positive attitude towards them. I thought, oh, they've left the family. Great. They've decided they want to go out and do their own thing. I was I, very. I totally get until that. Until this interview kind of disappointed me. Uh, yes, yeah, the same thing. It's sort of the Woody Allen all over. It's a like, little bit. Until I saw it, you know, I don't. I, I was happier not knowing, right? Yeah. And I thought, okay, great. And they're making deals around town to do documentaries. All nice things. All positive things. And yeah. And I thought, great, they're and working, they're doing, they're going to get off and do their own life. And be. Un- and then this interview was like, oh, no, you're not going to. You're going to now drag the family into it, remind everybody you're part of that family, uh, say bad things about yeah. them. When you were doing the classy thing and it was going so well, why did you do this? And that's what I don't understand. So, I mean, basically, to summarize this entire situation and what she left with was deal or no deal. Well, that's where she no started. So, Isn't that funny? She, How yeah, the circle closes saying, up. So this is what what you started with is what you left with. So exactly. here's the deal. An, an empty, or an no empty deal. attache case. Yeah. Can I go. close this by saying, though, that I wish them well and I that they get it back well. together? I would hope so. I, I hope do. That, and I, I hope and we say this out of exactly that reason. Look, we have a way of 
roundabouting things. Sure. You know, but, but, yes, but we in wish the bottom the line, they're good people. They just, uh, we live in not a great world and they have to just find the best, yeah. best of it for themselves. Because there's and something very the likable about the two Absolutely. of them. Absolutely. And they deserve the best. And, and I, I welcome them to our California and I hope they do great things here. And I think they can be. I think we just got to get them away from the not so great things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They made a misstep, I think, with yeah. this one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, just because he's a prince and married with two kids doesn't mean he's gay. Okay, now we're talking about gay things. <laughs> oh, you know, those little ginger boys. <laughs> so, Oprah seems to be all over our podcast she today. She does. Because interestingly oh, that's enough. good. <laughs> oh, oh, magazine. Oh, that's good. Mm-hmm. Said about the guest we have today. That he was a leading voice in the LGBTQ, LGBTQ community. XYZ community. Yeah. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And what's led up to allowing this guy to have this kind of a career. Yeah. Uh, did you ever see Ryan Murphy's Hollywood? Yes. Oh, yes. I, I fought it for the first couple of episodes because, I, I, well, if you know me, which you do, both of you very well— I'm never the guy that jumps right in when everybody else is already in it. Right. I like to find it out for myself, and then I can have my own opinion and yeah. a fresh outlook on it. Uh, but then once I jumped in, uh, yeah, I was disappointed in a lot of things. I felt uh, there was so much – I know there's so much real richness in, in, in Hollywood history. Why you have to embellish things that really don't exist to make it interesting when it's already interesting if you just dig deep. So that kind of a, that, that kind of annoyed me a little bit. Now I'll have Philip elaborate. I was going to say, Philip, is it a, did a, does it somehow yeah, remind you because... of Bridgerton? <laughs> <laughs> okay, because <laughs> yeah. well, here's the funny thing. Because when I I called, you know, we talk every single day. So I called him. I said, "Have you watched it?" And then when I hear on the other end go, <sighs> I was disappointed. I would say, "Okay, I was let really me have disappointed. your version." So go ahead. I, I love the look. I thought they, you know, you can see where the money was spent. Yeah. I thought all of that great was look. great. But with all this, the real stories, why did they have to make this up and make it up? It, it's so it's so crazy. Peg Entwistle, the woman that jumped from the Hollywood sign in the 30s. You know, it's an interesting story. But then you're going to turn it black in 1948? Not happening. It's not going to happen. It's, it's, it's not going to happen. And Rock Hudson, yes, we knew he was gay. And right. Roy, Mr. Roy Fitzmaurice, whatever his name was. But he did definitely did not go to the Academy Awards holding his boyfriend's hand. No, he did not. <laughs> no. And going, is that a guy or is that a dame? I mean, what kind of shit? Could How you imagine he, he would have been hung? I mean, he would, you know, it would, it would never have occurred. But I mean, we had instances prior that were just as impactful, if not even more so. William Haynes was a huge star at MGM um, in the silent days and had successfully made the transference over to uh, the sound. And uh, the Hayes office was coming in. He was really, a very good looking guy, too, from what You know, I very typical Ivy League looking yeah. and, 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 you know, very, very popular. And, and Joan Crawford's best friend. I mean, they. Oh, well, if you can't get any more gay than that. Right, exactly. Your best friend is Joan Crawford. You think, do you think he might be gay? Hello, he's hanging out with Joan. But they, they, he got into trouble. He got into trouble several times with the police, you know, for picking up guys, but he had fallen in love. And Mr. Mayor, oh, um, and the Hayes office was coming in with all the morals. 
you know, the morals crap. The Hayes office of power was building. So 31, 30, 31, he and Mr. Mayor had a kind of a conversation and Mayor said, give up your boyfriend because we've got to straighten this up. And he told Mr. Mayor to go fuck off. And well, left, good for him. And left his Integrity. career at the top and became the interior decorator and of of Hollywood. I think really. he did Mr. Mayor's house too, didn't he? He did, every, he did, every, he did everybody's <laughs> and Jones. house. And he said, he probably told him, oh, you're a better decorator than you were an actor. <laughs> he did everybody's house. And he even did the um, ambassador's uh, residence in the UK. Anyway, so he, he, did, he did everybody and everything. And his relationship- house, you mean. And his relationship with Jimmy Shields- was long-lasting. Joan said they were the happiest married couple in Hollywood. And when um, Haynes died of cancer in the 70s, Jimmy said he would not, he wasn't going to make it and killed himself. Wow. That's it. See, and that's a story right there. That's a story. No, They could have kept the real story. Yeah. 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 But if you look at those movies from the early 30s before the Hayes office really took over, they got away with murder. Right. There's a, a great movie, Wonder Bar. That's not a great movie, but and everybody's in it. Al Jolson, Joris Del Rio, blah, blah, blah. They're in a nightclub, and the couples are dancing by. All of a sudden, these two guys look at each other, and then they they got they stuff was on camera. Oh, that's a famous. All the time. That's a famous. Was a film. Famous yeah. Cap, hmm? yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's you know it's it's been around. It's been around for a long time. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, look. I mean, you talk about closeted gays and and actors that couldn't be, but I mean, but that's not really kind of how it was. I mean, it was a community that was kind of protected. Tony Perkins you know, there were a lot of big Tab stars. Hunter, yeah. Ramon Navarro was a huge star in the in the silent he film. He was Ben Hur. And and also Valentino was gay. Well he crossed the he, well, he, he I mean, jumped he fence. Bi, he, he jumped, jumped fence. fence, but I mean And that was a whole coterie, Ala Nazimova, Rudolf Valentino, and then his wife at the time, Natasha Rambova, those three, it was kind of a threesome. Cary Grant, so. Cary Grant lived with Ori Kelly. And even Lana Turner and and they had a little tryst. Didn't she? Ava well, supposedly, Gardner, that's supposedly, what Frank Sinatra said. Found yeah. them in the pool doing the breaststroke. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? <laughs> no, you got that wrong. She was found in the pool getting her breaststroke. <laughs> there you go. Okay. And when we come back, I'm very excited that we have Stephen Rowley here. Yeah, I can't wait to talk with him. I can't either, because as you know, he has some things that annoy me. Oh, yes. You're going to call him out on one I'm or two call little him out. things. Oh, this is going to be fun. Get ready. We might want to refill our cocktails for this. Yes. And we're back. And with us is Stephen Rowley, who is a very interesting character for me because many years ago we worked together. And he wasn't the greatest assistant <laughs> in the world, but God, he was entertaining. And handsome. <laughs> And I know how you feel about handsome men. <laughs> yeah, I think I still have those boxes filled with all the papers he was supposed to file. <laughs> He's gone on to an unbelievable writer's career, and we're going to talk to him about that. But I know he's anxious to hear what our cocktail of the day is for him. Well, first of all, welcome, Stephen. It's nice to have you join us. Thank you so much for having me. And Al Alan is right, by the way. I was probably a, a terrible assistant but terrible <laughs> but you were so entertaining you kept me laughing all the time 
That's how I earned my check. It certainly wasn't by filing right? or changing the toner in the copier. You know? yeah. I, I'm still not clear on what toner is. It was <laughs> filing your nails is what you were exactly. doing. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, Alan was, you know, you taught me, you know, you were my first education in publishing. So uh, I'm, I'm grateful still for that. Well, we have a little bone to pick with you later, but we're going to let him introduce the cocktail first. Yeah, you might need this cocktail <laughs> okay. after Alan starts going off. Is this a performance review or is this an episode of the podcast? <laughs> yes, you're going to have to get some of your salary back. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, today I created a, a cocktail for you called the, uh, the Hemingway, mm. since you're such an illustrious writer. And uh, it's based on a cocktail that I think you were introduced to by someone of note as well, a daiquiri, but a perfect daiquiri. Not a frozen daiquiri, more of a daiquiri martini. We're not on spring break. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, and it has a few little ingredients, which is a little bit of grapefruit juice, some lime juice. I like to add a little bit of the maraschino uh, cherry juice, or there is a liqueur you can buy. But one of the two, I think the maraschino actually juice is, is better. It's not quite as sweet mm. as, the, as the syrup is. And then a little dash of simple syrup, and then I garnish, garnish it with a lime. And here's and here to it you. Is. Cheers. Look at that. Layers of color. I'm going to need to make myself one after, after we get done, for sure. I'll send you the recipe so you can make this at home. And for everybody else, um, find the recipe on our social media. So, Stephen, you've become a big hotshot in the publishing world. Well, you know, hotshot is probably a word on a sliding scale, but uh, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> it's a hotshot for me. Your first book, not only did it garner a massive advance, but it did extremely well. I think the second book did extremely well too. But we're going to focus one book at a time. <laughs> okay. And uh, it was called Lily and the Octopus. And it was a Washington Post notable book of 2016. That's a big deal, the Washington Post. Because when you think of books, you think the New York Times and the Washington Post. Those are the two that real book people go to. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a real honor. I happened to be in D.C. On the, on the first leg of a tour. And, you know, a tour is difficult with a first novel because no one really knows who you are yet. And they, they send you out the week of publication and, 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 and really know what, nobody knows who you are. But D.C. is an interesting town. They have great independent bookstore scene in Washington, D.C. There's some really... Fabulous stores. And the day uh, that the, the review, the Washington Post reviewed Lily and the Octopus, I happened to be in town that day on that leg of the tour. And um, I walked into Politics and Prose, one of their very famous bookstores, and uh, they immediately congratulated me on the review. And I was like, someone knows who I am. This is so exciting. Of course, it was just, <laughs> just the person behind the cash register. But still, that was a big deal for it's me. Good start. Yeah, exactly. Well, I remember when I saw the announcement that they had bought the book from you because it was such a big deal. And I was like, wait a minute. Wait, he sold a book? I didn't, I've never heard anything of this. And when I talked to, I think it was your editor, maybe. And I said, well, how did this happen? And she said, well, he came to us without an agent. And I said, okay. And she said, and we told him he had to go get an agent. And you know what she said your response was? No. Oh, no. I don't know any literary agents. <laughs> oh, this is your bone? This is the bone I have to pick. I almost killed, I almost killed her through the phone. What do you mean he doesn't oh, know any goodness. literary agents? He worked for one. Oh, that's true. I did work for one. I do. All right. I, so I knew one, and somehow I still didn't think to pick up the phone and, and call him. Although, in my defense, I think the, 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 maybe the last time I, I'd seen your name go through Variety or whatnot, that it was more that I thought you were producing films. Now, I didn't even know you were still in the 
agenting business. I do it all. What can I say? I can't tell you how happy it made me. And I was just disappointed you hadn't thought of me because it would have thrilled me to do that for you. I I was so excited for you. I can't tell you. Oh, that's so great. Um, Yeah, I don't know. That time was such a whirlwind in my life and it all happened so fast. I mean, this is, you know, and then it makes news uh, in a certain way and everyone views you as an overnight success. Well, I was well into my 40s, you know, when I sold that book and, um you know, when people call you an overnight success or, or, or see this sort of Cinderella story, they don't see the 20 years of hard work um, and misstarts and mistakes that you make to get yourself in the, in the position where you can, uh, you know, when lightning does strike, that you can take advantage of it. Well, interestingly enough, that has come up as a theme on this show before, because a lot of people have come on and said the same thing. Everybody's like, oh, it just happened to her overnight. But they, you know, she's been out auditioning for 20 years sure. trying to get a part. Yep. Yeah. Well, I mean, you think about it, you think about the overnight success. It's like you're getting pregnant. You know, it happened in one night, but nine months later <laughs> is when the result comes. You know what I mean? So yeah. it may have happened on that night, but yeah. it didn't happen until. Right. Yeah. There, there are several manuscripts on a shelf in my house that, you know, should never see the light of day. In fact, this is a good to do. I should stop here and make a note to burn them before. Before, uh, you know, like uh, what happens to Harper Lee happens to me or so, you know, so, someone finds them after my demise. and Your partner will be like, oh, here, he didn't hear. He didn't publish this. He didn't publish that. Yeah. Here, you can have There's a reason things. he didn't publish this and didn't publish that. Yeah, It's based on a true story, right? It's it, based on you and your dog. Yeah, it's, it's correct. So Lily and the Octopus, I did have a dog named Lily who passed away in 20. 13 or something like that but I had gotten her as as a puppy it's 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 a the first time I sort of you know had a dog from from puppyhood you know into old age and um yeah. you know there's something that's it's a really great privilege to see a living thing through its entire lifespan you know it's not it's mm-hmm. not a lot of relationships we have like that if we have parents they we expect them to predecease us and and children should never predecease us but you know sometimes we have these these animals and we're there for their entire life and um you know it was a really profound uh friendship for me and when she passed i was really um uh found myself grieving in a kind of profound way that i wasn't prepared for at all and you know writers is a, it's a very solitary occupation as it is and i didn't realize how much i'd come to rely on her company but anyway you know i did sort of what what writers do which is uh, about six months, I found myself in this funk, and I, I've just sat down one day to try to write my way out of it, to try to understand it. And and I, I wish I could remember the day that an, an octopus uh, entered the story, because as it turned out, it was very good for my career. But uh, I knew sort of inherently what I was writing about was attachment and uh, how difficult it can be to let go. And there was something about having a tentacular metaphor that worked for this story in the way that I wanted to tell it. But it was a bit weird, you know, a book with a dog and an octopus. And, and you sort of think like, how, in what world would these two, uh, you know, creatures spend any time together? Uh, the story was just deeply personal. And I wrote it as weird as it needed to be for me to kind of heal. And when I was done with it, I thought, well, I'm proud of it as a, as a piece of writing. But I didn't think anyone would would read it. I thought it was so specific to me that no one would would care. But that happens sometimes, you know, with artists. The the voices in our head that devalue our own work are are loud and persistent. And so, you know, I was very lucky to find some cheerleaders for this 
book who told me that uh, someone might actually care to read it. Well, tell us how that happened, because we talk a lot about publishing and, you know, different aspects of how you get published. Did you write the entire book first? I, I wrote the entire book from from start to finish. This is going to get me further in trouble with Alan, but I didn't <laughs> I didn't think I, I didn't remember that I knew an agent, apparently. So, you know, I spent a long time trying to find uh, an agent the traditional way, querying and and, you know, writing New York agents, but or or cold calling. And, you know, but if you want to hear crickets on the other end of a telephone, you know, yeah, cold, cold call, call and, and ask if, if they want to read your book about a dog and an octopus. You know, <laughs> I think I, I tried to pitch it once as a cross between um, Joan Didion's Year of Magical Thinking and Moby Dick. And oh, uh, <laughs> which was a terrible pitch. And I certainly wanted it to appear as professional um, as possible. And I hired a freelance editor. There's a lot of these editors now who, because self-publishing has become such a big industry that, um, you know, have sort of hung out shingles as, the, you know, the open these businesses to help writers. And so, and she was the one who told mm -hmm. me, she's like, you know, I think that uh, there might be another avenue for this. And she helped me get it into the doors at Simon & Schuster. Time for a refill. We'll be right back. You didn't think that Lily and the Octopus was a film, but it's been optioned. It had, I know. Is that, it could, you know. But how long ago was it optioned? <laughs> right. It was optioned <laughs> in 2016. No one was more surprised than I was because once I decided to write Lily as a book, I sort of gleefully broke every screenwriting rule I could think of, right? Screenwriting has to be very external, has to be dialogue focused or action, things you can see on the screen. Whereas this right. novel, it's very internal. It largely takes place inside one man's imagination. Um, there's a talking dog and, a, and an octopus and a big battle at sea and, and everything I could hear a producer going, well, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. I'm not paying for that. <laughs> uh, that's not even yeah. possible. It was, it was sort of an FU to, to Hollywood in a, in a way because I thought I'd written something that was unfilmable. But then enough readers find you and Hollywood comes next. You know, uh, two of my books have been have been optioned so far. And, and so Lily, I did not write the script for for the reasons I mentioned. One, it was it's too deeply personal. And, and the first thing you have to do when adapting a book is really tear it apart and learn how to put it back together. You know, there, there's a lot more you can do in a book than you can do in two hours on a screen. Oh, yeah. Much better because you can really follow the book and deal with all the characters. I mean, if it's good, it's good for if it's good for two hours, it should be good for eight hours. Yeah, if it's you can well take done. the journey. People are afraid of miniseries for some reason. An old client of yours, Larry McMurtry, you know, Lonesome Dove yeah. was something that really thrived as a miniseries because it needed that breathing room. It needed that space to, to mm. you know, when you write a sort of epic story like that, it needs time. Right. But then you went on and you wrote The Editor. Yeah. <laughs> which I might tell everybody that was named by NPR and Esquire magazine as one of the best books of 2019. Crazy, right? So that's there's a few little accolades for you. <laughs> and that book, I actually drew on our experience, Alan, uh, quite a bit, because that's a book that takes place in the early 1990s uh, with publishing as, as a backdrop. It's about a, a, young, a young man in, in early 1990s New York who gets his big break when Jacqueline Onassis uh, acquires his first novel for publication. At Doubleday? At Doubleday, exactly. <laughs> a lot of people don't know probably now that she had this really tremendous career, this 15-year career after Onassis died. 
um, where she she put her head down, went back to work, and 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 edited more than a, a hundred titles, and, and really an extraordinary third act for a woman who had sublimated so much of herself to these two marriages, which she was famous for. Um, and I think this this time in her life is is the most interesting. So it was a really fun time to to write about for those of us who are love publishing and love books. Do you remember my adorable friend Shay Earhart? Yes. Well, I tried to talk to Shay actually in researching for the book, but she sort of famously does not talk about her time. She with Jackie. Yeah, because she doesn't talk talk about Jackie yeah. O'Neill. Did you ever have a run in with with Jackie through Shay? Because I know you and Shay were close. I did not through Shay. You know, Shay Shay absolutely adored her. Mm. And at one point she said, you must meet her. But then it was not long after that, that it was discovered she was she not was well. Yeah, she, it, people don't remember. She was only 64 when she died in uh, mm -hmm. 1994. So incredibly young. In fact, I think last year would have been her 90th birthday. So it's not inconceivable that she would still, could still be here. But, it, you know, she, she was tragically young when she passed. Yeah. So now the editor has been picked up for a film also or for TV? Uh, for film, for feature film, yeah. By 20, well, what used to be 20th Century Fox is now owned by the Walt Disney Company. So I like to joke, it's now it's now it's my opportunity to make Jacqueline Onassis a Disney princess. <laughs> in pink. In, yeah, in pink. To tie this back to our cocktail for the day, too, there's a, there's a scene in the editor where she fixes a, a daiquiri, much like this one. I don't think she used maraschino cherry juice, which she, she probably should have now that I know all about it for that for that touch of pink. But she used to drink daiquiri, you know, a very traditional daiquiri, like what you made, Joey. In the book, she and her young writer that she's working with uh, share one of these daiquiris together. And that was sort of great fun to imagine that. But I am writing that adaptation for a couple of reasons. One, it's it was much more of a novel. It was it was less personal to me, this this story. And I had all this great research about Jackie that I hadn't been able to use in the book that I thought maybe... Uh, could fit on screen. And and now I don't need to tell you either, but, um, you know, gay men love actresses. So, you know, in this novel, he's sort of caught between between his own mother, who has a prominent role in the book, and, and, and Jacqueline Onassis, sort of the idealized version of America's mother, as she was, as so many idolized Camelot. Um, and so there's two great roles for women uh, in their 60s and and so many great actresses who are underserved. And, and I just it was too tempting not to try to try to be a part of this adaptation. And then you have a new book coming. I do. Yeah, I have a book coming out May 25th. It's called The Gunkle. Oh, yeah, I'm I'm definitely a gunkle. <laughs> I am a so gunkle. For anyone who may not know, a gunkle is sort of the slang now for gay uncle, which has become quite a thing. There's even a gunkle's day in August. Uh, so, Joey, if, if, you're, if your nieces and nephews don't know that, make sure you're registered and tell them where. Oh, I will. I will. Registered at Macy's. <laughs> Macy's. <Yeah. laughs> I'm your niece, registered at your Tiffany. nieces and nephews are not <laughs> Tiffany bound. You want to bet? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so this is sort of a retelling of the anti-mame story, which I was excited to do. I've always loved anti-mame, from the Patrick Dennis novel to Rosalind Russell on stage, and then Rosalind Russell on the screen, and then a Broadway musical, and then a, a horribly miscast movie musical with Lucille Ball. But it was so great, that movie, to watch. Even though it's, you can't turn away from it, it's so much fun. It is fun now. And B. Arthur is in it. She's great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What interested me about that was was that Patrick Dennis himself was a, a you know who sort of created this character 
was, you know, deeply closeted, at least bisexual. He was married with with children, and then and then later in his life, sort of came out and was part of the Greenwich Village uh, gay scene in the late sixties and seventies. And and I started thinking about all these writers, and there were a great number of screenwriters too who were closeted in the sort of mid century who wrote these big body women as stand-ins for gay men. And because how the culture has changed so quickly, I thought, what a fun um, exercise to try to reclaim one of these women, you know, and and write it as he might have had he been allowed to uh, at the time. There you go. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm very excited. That comes out May 25th. And, um, you know, I'm a, a gunkle to five. Uh, nieces and nephews. And so that's become a very, you know, I don't have children of my own. So it was interesting to sort of write, you know, having children is is inarguably one of life's great experiences. And so I got to explore a little bit, you know, what does it mean to be an artist and not have that, um, have that in my uh, arsenal, you know, because I don't, I don't have yeah, kids no. of my own. But this, this really sort of allowed me to explore that sort of. Do you want kids of your no, own? No, I'm too old now. <laughs> I get tired. I don't do anything. I get tired. Well, it's not it's not even the age thing that troubles me. I don't like the mess. And God forbid you take out a set of crayons. That's not going anywhere near my furnishings yeah. <laughs> or my walls or, or that's, that's what drives you. me. Well, that's just but I love being the gunkle part is amazing because I can spoil them. I can I can take them. Right. But that's what duct tape is for. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners can't see this, but you both are sitting in front of the most incredible set of curtains, and I just want to—I just want to Maria von Trapp style take them down and make play clothes out of them for yes, exactly. <laughs> or a Cal Burnett episode yeah, exactly. when she imitates. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, gone with the wind. Gone with the wind. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I just saw them in the window, and I had to have them. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. She had the bar. Yeah, yeah. The she bar on the, her yeah, shoulders. Yeah, she had the curtain exactly. rod still in in. Uh, yeah, the curtain rods <laughs> in her shoulders. <laughs> Well, what's next after the gunkle? Because that must be done. You've turned it in. Oh, God. That, isn't that enough for now? <laughs> but you've turned it. Well, you've given up kids. There must be something Th- there else must out be there. something else. Do the gaunty. Do the gaunty. That's for the lesbian ones. <laughs> I'm working on something new. I would like to see these movies actually get made. So fingers crossed. Uh, but no, I, I'm out here in Palm Springs with my partner, who's also a, had his first novel come out last year. Oh. Called The Star is Bored based on his time working <laughs> with Carrie Fisher. And so that's really great. I know that novel. That's a great oh, time. Yeah. I didn't know that that was your partner. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, we've been together eight, almost eight years. Okay, we have one last thing. Okay. Where can listeners find you on social media? Ah, uh, you can find me at Mr. Stephen Rowley at just about everything. Uh, or as some obnoxious person just said, why is all your social media Mrs. Tevin Rowley? I'm like, it's Mr. M.R. Stephen Stephen. Rowley. Oh, that's hysterical. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, Instagram and Twitter and and, uh, Facebook author page, search for me that way. And uh, StephenRowley.com also. Looking for it. And when I'm in Palm Springs, I'm going to ring you and we'll get together and have a drink. Please. I got to have one of these daiquiris. I want the the, the color of the layers of it just. Well, we'll have to bring Joey as the bartender then. Yes, I will. That's all right. We'll make him stand in the corner. He can be a pool boy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. We'll see you soon, Stephen. Thank you for everything. Pack your caftans. Thank you. All right. Great to see you. (laughs) Take care. care. See you soon. Well, I can't tell you how proud and happy I am to have had Stephen on the show. 
You know, this guy, as I said, kept me laughing in stitches, and I just didn't know what he was going to do when he got older. So I, I, I'm so happy that he has been successful and he's doing what he wants to do. And it was such a pleasure for me to catch up with him. Yeah, he's a terrific guy and, a, and an incredible author. So Yeah. Well, as always, we're going to ask you to please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts as we really love reading your responses and it really does help us greatly. It does help us. Share, share, share. And I don't mean C-H-E-R. I mean S-H-A-R-E. Share the podcast with your friends. <laughs> and do not forget to follow us on social media. We'll be posting recipes, photos, and links from each episode just for you. And some of your questions that are coming in are quite hilarious. We love them. Keep them coming. You can message us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, email your question to contact at twoguysfromhollywood.com, and we'll talk at you soon. Two Guys from Hollywood is hosted, created, and produced by Alan Nevins and Joey Santos. Produced by Lauren Boone, editing and post-production by Nathan Moody, music by Luca, executive produced by Dan Patrick. It is also executive produced by Paul Anderson and Nick Pinella for Workhouse Media. This podcast is a production of Renaissance Literary and Talent and Dan Patrick Productions in association with Workhouse Media. Two Guys from Hollywood is a production of iHeartRadio and the Dan Patrick Podcast Network. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.